This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 45, our review of the recent Paris Nash Conference, plus, from the vault, conversation from April 22, which looked at the need to improve testing criteria for drug development. These conversations are running a bit behind our usual schedule due to the challenges of travel and time change surrounding the NAFLD Summit that ended in Dublin on Saturday. We'll be back on our regular conversation drop schedule next week. And now, on to the discussions. This conversation starts with Louise sounding an alarm about the growth rate for cirrhosis and bridging or advanced fibrosis. Her point, as we collect more data, the time we are taking to do so causes us not to save a large and annually increasing number of lives. She goes on to mention other talks in session one, focusing on Oksana Dropkina's talk about how the Russian system operates, which sounds, at least on the surface, more efficient and metabolically focused than what we do in some Western countries. Next, Jeff and Yorn discuss how satisfied they were with the closing session in which both participated. The diversity of regional challenges and the varied positions of the respondents led to a lively and far-reaching discussion. In response to a question from Yorn, Jeff describes what he learned while working on food policy in the Obama White House. In the last part of this session, I raised two issues that interest me. The ability to educate and work more quietly in Congress than in public venues, and the example I use is open-heart surgery, and then the value of educating physicians to think of fatty liver issues when treating other metabolic patients. Louise bridges from this to consider the idea that while different specialties look at each organ independently, all the organs are actually common victims of and participants in an integrated metabolic challenge, and we would do well to think of it that way. Every year, Paris Nash provides some of the strongest scientific content found in any program, coupled with an innovative look at fatty liver disease in the context of world health. This conversation touches on what emerged as some of the high points of a fascinating and important meeting. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Next topic. Louise, you've touched on four or five of them, so pick any one. I'm not sure any of us have been quite as specific. One particular talk in the meeting or one particular panel that really grabbed your imagination and why? Louise Campbell. I'm going to jump in because it was one of the sessions that I spoke about before, and it was obviously session one. The conference itself started with a bang, and it really was an interesting session. So we had Vimal Mishra talk about, um, although it really wasn't the patient journey with Nash, because it wasn't about patients, it was about the statistics around NASH and the, the data shows that we are continuing to have a problem. The reason this plays in, and it was important, because if we think about the reverse side of the coin that Jean was on about with data, 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 it does mean that we're going to see 110 to 125% rise in advanced liver disease and mortality by 2040. So while we search for data, these people are dying. We are left with nothing, really. So he was really frightening. And these are US figures. So it was the scale and the level. We can carry on collecting data for the next 10 years, which will take us to 2032. By 2040, we've got a massive problem because obesity is being driven and all of that. So when we talk about finding disease early, we need to do that. Not only did Fayez Zanand talk about the cardiac metabolic factors, he also mentioned that we always look at fibrosis as being an F2 and above being causes of all-cause mortality. 
He put that into perspective. It's a very minor perspective in all-cause mortality, really. We just focus on the liver side and which part of that fibrosis drives it, which I thought was an interesting aspect. And then I think we had Oksana Daprinka, who did an excellent session on NCD location that Russia do. 18 and above, everybody gets a free health check by the country looking for comorbid systems for NCDs. Now, that would be very easy to add NAFL2 because they're looking for type 2 diabetes and they did a screening ECG so you could add a screening fibre scan you assess everybody coming out of adolescence and puberty and then there wasn't a re-screen if there was no problems until they were 45 this is doable but the bit that entertained me was the bit about the lifestyle coach to me that's a nurse in any other language and in any other area we have most of those skills and can be done and when we had the episode the other week we were talking about low-hanging fruit Use what you've got, use it better. And these people are skilled, these nurses, these cardiometabolic, these diabetes nurses. But I think the other thing I took away from her was the dietary information. In patients with NAFLD, you only needed to lose 5% body weight. That's a far achievable weight loss if you find it early. It was NASH that had a better resolution with more than 10%. And yes, exercise, a combination of exercise worked. And it was very interesting to see the different diets and how NASH was affected by the majority of certain aspects, but lots of other diets didn't affect all of the other metabolic components. So that whole session for me gave a basis and a format where we can stick in a lot of the other things. We have to do something. Each liver at a time is, a, is an outcome for me. And and that's what we, what obviously I drive early diagnosis and access to those toys, but we have to do something. Jaren Schattenberg. I agree, Louise. It was a fascinating session. And I agree the projections Homi Razavi did as an update 2040. He said they had much more data to integrate now. Numbers stay the same, keep on increasing. Right now, their liver disease is more prevalent in terms of HCC, like HBV and Hep C still. But the way this goes up is really troublesome. And additional comments on this session, I share your perception this was a special, the integrative care. I would have liked to see a nurse with you there. I think I mentioned that in our session, Jeff, and might be one way forward to really integrate uh, healthcare for these patients. Okay, Jeff, you want something? You go before me. Jeff McIntyre. Yeah, um, I'm going to log roll a little bit and just talk about how great I thought our session was that Bjorn and I were in, that it was much more wide ranging than I had anticipated, I think. You know, I'm up there ready to talk about the necessity of the patient involvement in things, but especially when Jeff, we got, did, you, did you prepare a talk too? I, I had like 15 slides sitting on the computer and I didn't get to show them. I did. I regret my time away from other things, from having a no doubt both of our PowerPoint presentations would be nominated for Pulitzers by now, um, but uh, <laughs> well, but but it was a bit of a surprise to be thrown into that Socratic dialogue as opposed to the soapbox that we had both prepared for. But it was a good off-the-cuff discussion, I thought. And as I said, it went to a couple of unexpected places, notably for me, the conversation around cost, which we previewed a little bit in the earlier today talking about the payers versus the regulators and that sort of thing, about how so much of the industry is really focused on, frankly, late stage, about F3, F4, about NASH itself. But as Louise mentioned earlier on, we see cardiovascular disease as having a really high mortality rate for people with fatty liver disease. And it does correlate with NASH, but it also correlates with earlier symptoms of fatty liver disease. And so that that's kind of a Gordian knot that we have to uncover with the industry. And I think that's another place where the patient voice can be helpful, that people just aren't symptomatic and not aware of it at that point. It was really great to see 
and I truly was honored to be the only American other than Dr. Sanyal, but of the panelists, to see that sort of global input to talk about the experience in South Africa and all the lessons that they've learned in terms of engaging HIV, the Asian experience, which is certainly has a big lifestyle component. And they talk a little bit differently about how they have engaged other non-communicable diseases. And then our friends from Mexico, including the government official that was seated next to me and about how they're engaging it. And we hear a lot of buzz basically going on about Mexico and some of the efforts that they're doing there. And this panel really got a chance for them to shine and talk about the history of some of the work they've done. But we're also, you know, we have now actually a government official on stage other than the FDA, talking about how they can move forward in this area. Let me just jump in. I agree, Jeff. I tremendously enjoyed the session. Unfortunately, some people left early. That's always what happens. So we had a smaller crowd in place, but it was a lively discussion. Everybody brought his views. And, you know, I've almost meant to ask you about your experiences from working with White Hat administration around the patient's aspects, because obviously I agree, this is what we need to do. We got to involve politicians. And I even take it one step forward. I'd like to see someone coming out, disclosing his fatty liver disease and taking like a role model to lead us in the political discussion to be able for people to connect and make this priority in diverting health resources to it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. It really speaks to the issue of stigma that we haven't had anybody come out and talk about this. Whereas I've got lots of patient stories, none has really been at that celebrity level. And in most people, as you know, with the stigma of liver disease, still associated with alcohol-related cirrhosis. And it's tough to get people to come out with that. You know, for us, we're Working with the White House was playing to kind of the strengths that I think I have and the trajectory of my career has brought me to, which was previously working in food politics and in working in physical inactivity as part of the Obama White House's Task Force on Childhood Obesity. And so it's almost like where I am now has arrived at the disease state from so much of the social factors that have played out previously on this. And so when we got into the discussions about that there was going to be a White House conference on nutrition, you know, originally those discussions were nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. And then we slowly saw the agenda and the conversation through the listening sessions begin to really rotate much more around their priorities, which were going to be mostly sustainability and supply chain. And those are big things. I mean, arguably, sustainability and climate change should be a through line through every discussion everywhere. I don't disagree with that. Supply chain is big on people's minds coming out of the pandemic. There's been a lot of difficulties with that as well. But when you isolate those in terms of the food issues, it really becomes then about can we find a place to be able to sustain more food and then provide it to those that are in need. And it really says nothing about the type of food. It says nothing about inequities in food. At that point, it essentially becomes a conference on calories, if you will, and less a conference on nutrition as it might be able to treat a clinical or critical disease of some sort. And so we just started pushing. You know, we had folks within the industry. We had folks that were in startups. There were folks in pharma that actually we had great conversations with as well that all believed in this message. And fortunately, we were able to push in a way to be able to get it mentioned several times in the White House conference report. We're still waiting to see how the agenda comes, but this is part of what's important is we've got to be able to carry the small stories, the patients, be able to build them up as advocates before their doctor and before the FDA, but at the same time, be able to encourage people to work at a higher level, that this is an international issue that we all see coming 
coming and to be able to engage it at both the White House and the backyard. And so to a certain extent, I'd like to say we were lucky that we got it in there, but we had the right time, right place to be able to raise the voice for the White House. And we anticipate, you know, we're not going to let our, our, our foot off the pedal with this. We're going to keep pushing forward for more recognition in these places. And eventually we're going to get somebody that's going to come around. Somebody, unfortunately, just the way the statistics are, it's going to happen where somebody will have Nash and have issues from that and will begin to speak out about it. But hopefully it's going to be a voice that can be heard and will be respected and related to worldwide. Chef, three thoughts, two related to this conversation and one my answer to my original question. Here's the first one. Back in the 80s, when I was doing political polling, I had two clients who were members of Congress who were also members of something called the Zipper Caucus, which nobody knew about. And the Zipper Caucus, interestingly named, was for people who had open heart surgery. They never went public, but they all knew who they were. They all got together for lunch once a month. In fact, some of them prayed together whenever anybody else was out to have surgery. You found people who prayed for them. And the net result was that anybody working in heart disease knew that that was a group of people you could go to. They were bipartisan. And I don't believe that any of them, to the best of my knowledge, made a point publicly saying, hey, I've had quadruple bypass. I've had pacemaker. I've had any of that. But they all knew. Now, that was a different point in time. Congress was a lot more functional then than it is now. In fact, uh, one of my Democratic clients asked me if I would do polling for a Republican friend of his who we met through the Zipper Club. I don't think you see that a lot in 2022. But my point is that in Washington, at least, there are, things can move in ways that are quieter than in the world of public celebrity advocacy, number one. Number two, completely different point. I suspect that we will not have as much success going after F1 and F0 by getting people to do drug studies that have outcomes attached to them because it's going to take forever to get to those outcomes, even if you measure surrogate endpoints. However, if we do a good enough job of educating physicians and other healthcare professionals about the nature of metabolic disease, and they come to an understanding that a lot of these drugs are going to work in more than one situation, fade back to the conversation that I shared about Wagovi and Ozempic, and now roll into that, the dual and the triple agonist for obesity and all the things we're learning about SGLT2s. And we get to a place where a drug might not need to have a NASH approval if we've done a good enough job of educating the profession of how all these pieces fit together. I think that's a much more practical strategy, frankly, than waiting to get drugs approved for F1 Nash or for NAFL, period. I'm just going to jump in on that because I think that was also that something that Farez Anand was talking about. He mentioned the fact that we all think our organs are the result of the injury from the other organs. So we always look at it as an organ-centric disease. And I think his phrase was, which was a beautiful phrase, our organs aren't necessarily the victims. They're all the victims of a set of risk factors. That's very much the way we should be looking at it. That brings in the this whole AI back reading, looking at all of the common risk factors and then assessing for every disease and putting in that plethora of tests. So you get your ECD, you get your scan, you get your whatever, you get your fibro or ELF and you do that through and you assess for which set of fibrosis because he talked about fibrosis being more or less equal, every organ fibrosis. What also interested me and I thought was a very good session was surreal um, causes one about the diabetes populations, the five categories and you can pick out which one are going to get kidney failure and heart disease and they all have NAFLD. Those now real subpopulations that we can pick out, that means we can target better. So yes, it was a great conference for looking at things like that. Still, we cannot diagnose if we can't get a routine screening despite the rate of increase we're struggling. I don't disagree and I didn't mean to convey anything to the fact that we weren't. I was simply asking, do you try to climb the 30-foot wall or the 6-foot wall? And even if after you climb the 6 foot wall, you've got three more six foot walls to climb to get to where you wanted to get to in the first place. It's probably easier to do it that way. And now back to Roger. 
We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss some recent exciting drug trial results and what they pretend for the next couple of years in drug development. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.